Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast, and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofaro. After over 30 years of listening to the stories of grieving children, teens, and adults in our grief support groups, we wanted to share what we've learned from them with the larger community. Our podcast is a way to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While it's something we'll all experience during our lives, when it occurs, most of us don't know what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. Whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we're here to talk about and explore what matters to you the most in grief. Joan Sweizerhoff, Coordinator of Training and Program Projects at the Dougie Center, is our guest again today. Welcome back, Joan. Thank you. And for the past 24 years, Joan has worked with thousands of children, teens, and their families. So no matter how someone has died, whether it's from cancer, a heart attack, or a car crash, people in their lives usually struggle with knowing how to be there for them. And when there's been a murder, a murder-suicide, or someone is killed by a driver under the influence, that uncertainty, fear, and confusion about how to help can be especially heightened. Joan and the rest of the staff at the Dougie Center have learned a lot from the families dealing with the multiple layers of grief that can accompany a violent death. And today we wanted to share some of that with you in the hopes that if you're a support person out there, you'll be able to use some of those suggestions and ideas of how to show up for friends and family, or if you're a parent or a grandparent or a caregiver of a child or a teen who has experienced a violent death, maybe know and understand a little bit more about their experience and how to best help them. So we'll talk about some of the common struggles that we hear from kids and teens and offer some tangible ideas and suggestions. So Joan, when I think about children and teens who have experienced a violent death, it seems like so many of the same things come to mind. Um, as those who have had someone die from cancer or a heart attack in terms of how important it is to be honest with kids, to provide them with choices, to create structure and routine while also being flexible, uh, the importance of listening to kids and remembering that everyone grieves in their own way. What's your sense of how those basic suggestions fit or don't fit with families who are dealing with a violent death? I think they're all um, very important. I think, however, some of the issues with kids who have a violent death um, may be uh, a little bit different. So, for example, in terms of telling the truth, it's very important um, to tell the child the truth, but I think that you want to be careful about how much detail and how much um, of the uh, specifics that you might share. So um, be, certainly tell the child that the person was killed, maybe shot, whatever the, whatever the specifics are, but not to go into graphic or gory details unless the children ask and then answer them as best you can with as little detail about that as possible. So in terms of trying to minimize the images that are getting created for kids, right? but also recognizing that a lack of information can lead them to create their own images. Exactly. So you might say, you know, um, a, a bad man came and he shot your dad and not go into any more detail about where he was shot or the details around what happened to his body, unless the children ask specific Mm -hmm. questions and then answer their specific questions as best you can. Because it seems like for some kids, knowing those, like, where did it happen can be part of how safe am I? 
needs, right? So did it exactly. happen in our house? Did it happen someplace else? What were the circumstances surrounding, surrounding that? Exactly. And, you know, and, and that brings up a lot of the issues that, that kids after violent death really experience a lot of fear um, about their safety and the safety of others. I remember one young girl whose father was shot in an apartment complex and every day she would go by that complex on her way to school and home. And the man um, was in prison and she knew that, but every time she went by she would scoot down in her seat so that he wouldn't see her, so that he wouldn't be able to shoot her as well. Um, and so those fe fears like that um, come up for kids. Um, even if the person has been shot or killed, um, they still worry about, well, that person or someone else might come to get me. So fear is a, is a huge issue for children after a violent death that may be a little bit greater than for other kinds of deaths. Also, as you're telling kids, even just the basic story, recognizing that the fear may be a much stronger aspect for them. Do you see that play out the same way for teenagers? Uh, absolutely. I think that, that they have more cognitive ability to understand that their fear might be irrational. Um, but still, they, they have that same, that same worry. Um, you know, uh, we have a teen who's, whose brother was shot in a school situation. And, you know, absolutely. Is, is there going to be somebody coming into the school some other time and shooting us? You know, that, that fear stays there for those kids and that it's a real fear for them. And I imagine then for adults who are trying to support kids and teens that there may be circumstances where you can say unequivocally, like the person who you know, shot your dad is in jail and we know how long they're going to be in jail, and we will definitely know if they get out of jail. But then a situation like a school shooting or some of the other mass tragedies that have happened, where as an adult, you can't absolutely assure kids of their safety. Do you have any suggestions of how to talk to kids about that? I think that what we do is to say we, we try our very best to make this our house and our world as safe as possible. And asking the child what it is that makes them feel unsafe or, or fearful. One um, family had uh, asked the child and he said, I'm worried about that somebody might come through the window. And so every night their ritual was to go around the house and make sure all of the windows were locked and the doors were locked. That was enough for that child to make him feel that his home was safe. So oftentimes if you ask the child what it is that might help them to feel more safe, um, it might surprise you that it's mm -hmm. a pretty simple thing. It might not be as big as what we're trying to think about is, oh my gosh, how are we going to make the world safe? Right, we don't need to install an amazing security system at home. We might just need our special teddy bear. Exactly. next to mm -hmm. us. Make sure that there's nobody under the bed and in the closets before, or maybe leaving the light on. Oftentimes simple things for kids that make all the difference for them in terms of their feeling safe. And I wonder too sometimes for kids and teenagers and adults too, the of repetitive nature of needing to check on those things. I just noticed for myself this week after the Orlando shooting, I already have my own like check the door, check the window, but I was so distracted that I didn't make myself notice, yes, the door is locked. So I had to go back and check and check the windows three more times. And with grief, how much emotional and um, mental energy it takes that kids can need some more of that extra reassurance. Exactly, exactly. I have one, one boy in my, in my group right now whose father... Um, went to the door and he was shot. And so when he comes to our group, he stands at the door and he looks out to make sure that the person coming in is safe before he lets them in. And that's part of his safety. It makes him feel safe in our space to say, I know who's coming in and out of our group. Um, so we allow the child to make those kinds of decisions that help them to feel safe and comfortable in the space that they're in. So the choices may be um, 
different than the choices that we that kids are needing when someone has died in a different way. They may be very specific exactly. to safety exactly. and understanding. I think some other issues that come up for kids is that um, there is a police investigation always um, around um, a death, and oftentimes the surviving parent, if it's if it's one parent that's killed, the surviving parent is often considered a suspect, and so the child. Um, is worried that they're going to lose both of their parents, and so there's lots of fear and concern about that. Um, additionally, I've had, especially with teenagers who maybe have witnessed or have some information, that they're told not to talk about it because it's part of an investigation. And so for them, it's this dilemma of they need to share, they need to talk about it, but they're told by the police not to talk about it. So that really complicates how they handle their grief process. I imagine, too, they go back to school and kids have so many questions and lots of rumors running around. And then here this teen is who's been told you can't share any of the details, so they can't even dispel some of the rumors maybe that are inaccurate. That must be a really challenging place to be. It's, I think, really challenging for them. And as you bring up a good point, that the media is in is always um, in a in a murder um, investigation. And oftentimes the facts that they come up with are not accurate or not true, and families feel really violated, often feel very violated by the way the story is told. Has there been anything you've heard from families over the years that would um, translate into some suggestions for families about how to deal with the media? I mean, I've heard that some people it's helpful to appoint somebody in the family, maybe not in the immediate family, to be the spokesperson. Yes. One of my very favorite uh, lines was from um, a man, and what he said was, just don't say anything. You know, they won't. If you don't say anything, what do they got to, to broadcast? So I, I, I like that one. It's like <laughs> that was the easiest one I think for for people to say. You don't have to. You're not required to speak to them. You're not required to talk with them. So just knowing they have that choice, I imagine many families feel that they have to say something. Exactly. Exactly. And to know that, that you don't have to. I think that the other thing that's that is a complication for um, the kids around the media is they may their death may have happened a year or two ago, and then a new uh, death of a similar situation occurs, and it brings up all of their story. Oftentimes, the, their story comes up on the news as well. Do you remember when so and so's mm -hmm. murder? Da da da. And so, you know, maybe they're sitting having dinner, and they're watching the news on television. And all of a sudden, the picture of their person who's died is is right there on the television. So that is another um, issue that they're always kind of hyper vigilant, always worried about what's going to happen next. When is it going to be talked about again? And will my story get put back into? The, the mainstream. The mainstream right? again, yeah, and having to deal with that again, for sure. When you talked about um, the media and how it, oftentimes people who have been murdered or involved in a drunk driving crash or something like that, that um, how they're described can get pretty skewed. And I, I wonder what that's like for kids and teens where it seems like there's a lot of quick assumptions made when you hear someone's been murdered. You know, that, oh, they must have been involved in some type of illegal activity or they must have been doing something. Um, how does that play out for the kids and the teens in terms of how people ask them about the death or as a caregiver how you can help kids respond to those questions? Um, one of the, I think that that's a really common reaction or response and there's a couple of ways to deal with it. One is to say you know what the truth is and you don't have to believe everything that's been told out there. Another thing is to say, you know, if someone asks you something that you or tells you something that you know is not true, you might say, you know, that's really not what happened or that's not how that person was. Or, um, and so being able to clarify or give information maybe having that spokesperson speaking to the media to say, you know, we've, we've had a lot of, of rumor out there that this is happening or that is happening, and um, I'd like to clarify 
that this was the case. You know, it wasn't as, as you've been reporting it. And in some cases where maybe someone dies and information comes out that maybe they were involved in some activity or connections that did lead to that death, it, I've heard kids and teens say like they're grieving the death of the person, but then they also grieve the information that maybe came out after the death that they didn't know about, right. whether it was uh, someone was addicted to substances that the family didn't know or they had some financial challenges. Have you heard kids and teens talk much about that sort of another layer of grief? I think more so for teens than for children. Um, and it's almost like, oh, I thought I knew my dad or I thought I knew my mom, and now I'm finding out um, things that I didn't really know about them. So they were a different person than the person. And so they kind of feel violated in that way by their parents not having been truthful with them or them not knowing um, what had happened. And it puts adults in their lives in, a, in kind of a precarious position of having, those adults probably have their own thoughts and opinions about things and then making space for their kids to have whatever feelings and thoughts and questions and yeah. that that may change over time, which I imagine for some adults can be really painful to watch that process. Exactly, exactly. And, and to be able to help them understand who their parent was and still it was a parent who cared and loved for this child, even if it wasn't the parent that they thought that they knew. Which also brings to mind kids who have experienced a murder-suicide. Um, either it was, you know, two family members or a family member and a close family friend. What have you heard from kids in your groups about that situation of they maybe loved both of those people who died and one of those people actually killed the other person they loved? I think that really complicates um, their grief in many ways. It's pretty common for them to feel um, and have grief reactions and share memories about the person who died by suicide. But um, the person who was the murderer oftentimes are vilified by a lot of people in the family. And it makes it, it, makes it challenging for that child to feel like they can have any kind of, of grief reactions um, other than hate or anger or revenge or rage at the person who, who um, committed those heinous crimes. It becomes really challenging for the child to be able to deal with, how am I going to um, grieve my dad if he killed my mom? I have one little girl who for many years came to the Dougie Center after her father had killed her mother and then killed himself. And she would always say, you know, mom's up there and dad's down there. And she would share memories about her mom, but she could never share memories about her dad. And then as she was getting ready to leave the Dougie Center for the first time, she was, we were doing a candle lighting ceremony and she was able to light a candle for her dad as well as her mom. So she understood that her dad was an important person in her life, even though the act that he committed was a horrible thing, that he still was the loving dad who cared for her over those years. So making space for kids to have all of those reactions but not trying to push them in any one direction or another and allow that to unfold as it does. As, as they need. You know, continuing to say, you know, your dad loved this, you know, as well as your mom. So not just not talking about the dad at all but including him in the memories just as you include the mom in the memories mm -hmm. um, I think is helpful. And as the adult, if you are in a place where you absolutely cannot talk about that person, maybe find someone else in the family or a friend of the family who can share those things so that you don't feel like you have to be the one. Exactly. Are un that's just too painful to think exactly. about. I think that another um, area that is really different for children who've had um, a, a murder or violent death is the criminal justice system. Um, there's a couple of challenges. One is oftentimes it takes a long time, if ever, to find the person. That brings up again those fears if the, the person is not caught. Um, that the children are very fearful that um, that person is still out there and they're going to come and get them too. When the person is caught and they go to trial, trial is often several 
months, if not years, after the actual event. And sometimes these children are considered witnesses, so they have to relive those stories um, over and over in, in terms of uh, being able to be available for the trial. If they're not witnesses, it's still, you know, um, not knowing what the, what the outcome of, of this trial is going to be. Um, and then we find um, so many times that once the sentencing happens for the person, no matter what the sentence is, you know, if it's 10 years, if it's life, if it's death penalty, it's never enough. Even though they think it's going to give them some resolution, um, it really doesn't because because their person is still dead, and it doesn't matter what happens to that other person. It, does, it doesn't justify the fact that their person is still dead. I feel like I've heard some people say, like, oh, I'm starting to feel my feelings around this loss in a whole new way now that the trial is complete. Um, not in that, like, okay, now things are better, but more in that I had to put so much on hold because I just had to function and get things done, and it was so logistical imagining for families just to be aware that there could be a surge of emotion after that is finally done that they weren't expecting. Exactly, exactly, and that's, that's very common for families, for sure. And then it surprises them that it comes up again because they were thinking, well, I, I, you know, it's been so long and I think I've done my grief, but they really haven't done a lot of the grief um, because they really have kind of postponed it or put it on hold while the trial was happening. Mm -hmm. So I think that just being aware that that's going to come up for, for kids as well as for families during, you know, after the trial is over is going to be a huge piece. And you mentioned um, the boy in your group who always wants to open the door, see who's on the other side. It seems like that sort of high startle response, really vigilant about safety. How else do you see that happening for kids? Um, I see that kids will never have their backs to the door. So when they're um, in a, like in a classroom, for example, if you know the, the teacher wants to put them um, in a place where they can't see the door and they can't see people coming and going, it makes them very anxious. Um, so for them to be able to put themselves in a situation where they feel like they can see what's going to happen and that, that, that they're aware. Um, also, startle responses are, are often huge. So if a car backfires or, or if at fireworks times when there's lots of loud noises, they become really anxious, like, oh my gosh, is that a gun? Is somebody shooting? Sometimes when, a sensitivity just to loud noises in general. So yeah. you're in group and kids are being really, really loud. I can imagine for some of those kids that can be pretty activating yeah. and hard to like settle and yeah. focus. Play. Um, if, if kids are playing, doing gunplay, for example, um, it makes them very upset. Oftentimes they'll say, you know, can you please put that gun down? I don't want to, you know, even if it's just your finger that they're playing as a gun, could you please not do that? Because, you know, my, my dad was shot and that makes me nervous. So you, sometimes we'll see them uh, feel uncomfortable about play that oftentimes didn't bother them before, but now is very painful or problematic for them. Speaking of play, because for parents and caregivers, teachers out there, seeing kids who have had a violent death, drawings, play, are there some things that people can be aware of? What we know about kids and their play is that they their play is helping them to make sense of the world and what has happened. So um, many times the kids will play out the events that had, had happened. Um, and it can be very violent. And um, people say, well, you know, let's not do that. But part of their making sense of the world is to do that kind of play. And so we always have the, the caveat, however, of that it's not okay to hurt others or themselves. And so, you know, we are very careful to make sure that that play is safe. Sometimes the drawings can, can become um, pretty violent. And it's okay for the kids to do that um, as long as... Um, it doesn't continue over long periods of time. If it continues over long periods of time and it doesn't change or you notice it getting worse, and that's certainly something to be aware of um, in terms of getting some 
assessment to see if this child is maybe needing some individual therapy or some counseling to help them with, with the, the challenges that they're dealing with at that moment. So a safe container for them to continue to express themselves in that way, but with some clinical support around that. Exactly, yeah. And a reminder for me always to never assume what I think that photo or that picture is about. Mm -hmm. So to always ask, I had a kid in group the other day and I thought it was a gun and he was like, no, that's a whale eating a fish. And I was like, okay, thank you for <laughs> clarifying for me. But even for kids who are doing drawings of what they imagine happening, letting them tell the story rather than assuming what we think is happening. Exactly. And oftentimes it's a story about a video game that they're playing or a television show that they watched and it has nothing to do with what's going on for them necessarily. So by asking them to tell you what it is, then you get a better sense of what the child is thinking as they're doing those drawings. In our last few minutes, I'm wondering about how families who've had a violent death, how they get responded to by the community, by their friends, by family members. Do you have any tips or suggestions for people? of what maybe to say, not say, how to respond, how to show up. There seems to be like a real dichotomy. There are some people that, that have folks that are very supportive of them and um, are right there with them, and then there's other folks for whom it's a real problem. Um, those people are wanting to know the story, wanting to hear the details, wanting to get into the graphic nature of that, and not really for the help of the family, but for their own curiosity. Oftentimes, families who've had a violent death, people disappear from their lives because they don't know what to do and they don't know what to say, or it's almost like they feel it's somehow contagious, you know, and if you're hanging around somebody who's had a murder, then, you know, if you distance yourself, then you won't have that murder happening for you. And what I would say is that these families really need um, that support from the, the people who have been supportive of them. And so show up, ask what you can do to help. Um, a lot of times they don't have an idea of what they need um, because they're so overwhelmed with all of the details of dealing with, with the um, court systems or the police or the media or you know their own grief around it. Sometimes it's helpful to say something that you could do, to say, here are three things that I can do. Which one do you want me to do for you today? You know, I can mow your lawn or I can do your laundry. I can do your grocery shopping for you. You know, I can watch the kids so that you can just have a few minutes of, you know, peace and quiet. So being able to offer some concrete things that you can do to be helpful for them, I think is a huge gift. And, you know, the thing that we find with our kids particularly is that they really go in and out of grief. And when it's a, a murder or violent death, sometimes people think that they're going to just be sad all the time and, and just stay away from them. Um, but they need playtime too. They need to have breaks from that grief. They need to be able to go and laugh and play and, and go to the movies or go swimming or that sort of thing. So maybe the family isn't able to do that uh, for, the, for those kids. So maybe you could step up and say, hey, how about if I take the kids and do this and that? Um, so offering normalcy in that in the in the life that they're dealing with, which is already so challenging for them, is important. I think. Well, thank you so much, Joan. Super helpful tips for parents and caregivers, and for family members and friends out there. Um, if you have other questions, you can always contact us at help at dougie.org, and can check out the links that I'll put in our show notes for other resources. Um, if you'd like to listen to any other episodes of Dear Dougie, find them on dougie.org, or you can also find us in iTunes. And if you want to learn more just about what the Dougie Center does, you can find us as well on Facebook and Twitter. If you have any ideas or suggestions for a future podcast episode, this one today came specifically from an email we received. So um, we'd love to be able to talk about what you want to hear about. So send us an email at help at dougie.org and just put podcast somewhere in the subject line. Thanks again, Joan, for being here. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening.